My name is Pastor Corey. I'm the transition pastor here at Kent Covenant Church. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, this morning we continue in the book of, or the letter to the Ephesians. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and it reads like this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming age, ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in, in advance for us to do. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space, where heaven and earth meet. Amen. I'm about to read you what, in my opinion, is one of the greatest first lines of a novel in modern literature. Are you ready? It goes like this. I am doomed to remember a boy with a wrecked voice. Not because of his voice, or because he was the smallest person I ever knew, or even because he was the instrument of my mother's death but because he is the reason I believe in God. I am a Christian because of Owen Meany. That is from the novel A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving, and I've always been captivated by that sentence. What a way to start a story. Now, I will confess that if there is one place in my life where I am often filled with envy, and yes, I recognize the problem with that, it's this. I have always been envious and jealous of great storytellers who can weave a story rich with meaning and passion and pathos and twists and turns and draw us into a different reality. Those who can create with words, poems, and stories that transform us, if only briefly, into more than we were 
before. This text that we're looking at this morning is one of probably the most famous or contains some of the most famous verses of the Bible throughout church history. The, the verses towards the end of the text that we read this morning, for you are saved by faith, not works, lest anyone should boast, are the words that were the dynamite that stirred the great reformation in Martin Luther's heart. And so this text finds itself repeated often. But I think oftentimes, as with so many of the verses and texts that we love from the scriptures, we remember one verse out of a context that is much richer than the part that we remember. Now last week, we had a very full worship service, if you were here. We had five baptisms and two affirmations of baptisms. And, and in some ways, this is a, would have been a more appropriate text for last week than this morning because um, it has to do with this idea of death and resurrection and, how, and just how exactly God makes that work. And so as we look at this text this morning, we see that in the first couple verses, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, Paul is still utilizing that us and them uh, description that he uses in chapter 1. Us being the Jews and them being the Gentiles. And he says in in chapter 1... very directly speaking to the them. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But it's interesting how Paul does this because I think he's very intentional in the choices he makes. Because I suspect that there were those among the Jewish believers that when they heard this part of the letter, of the letter read, they were like, yeah, that's right, Paul. They were dead in their transgressions. But we... We are people of the promise. We did not have that problem. But then Paul goes on in verse 3 to say, All of us also. As if to say, not so fast. We are all in the same boat. Finishing up verse 3, he says, Like the rest... We were by nature deserving of wrath. So Paul has a way of telling the story that draws people in and then exposes our own biases and thoughts. But there's one piece that I want to look at in verse 2 that is, I think, helpful for us. Paul says, in which um, you used to live, that's transgressions and sins from the beginning of the verse, when you followed the ways of the world. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. The word for lived there is a word that literally translated means walked about. Because I think it's, and I think this is a helpful distinction, and it's one of those places where the English doesn't quite get us to what exactly Paul was saying. 
Because I think when we hear that verse read, we think the way you lived. It's like the decisions you made, the choices you made. But Paul's talking about something a little different, a little deeper than that. He's talking about a way of living, a way of being. This is so deeply a part of us that we walked about in it, right? It's the air we breathe. This idea of that this is the way you lived. It's not so much um, an intellectual assent to a philosophy of life. It is the very way that we live with it kind of, I think, at least to me, it seems unreflectively. It's so much a part of who we are that we don't really recognize it. And then Paul goes on to say, as I mentioned, that the way he's telling the story at first glance makes perhaps those who are of the promise, the Jews, the us, those on the inside, think that they're scot-free. But then he goes on in verse 3 and says that all of us lived that way. All of us walked about that way. We're all deserving of God's wrath. Now we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating because as Paul goes on in this text, in verses 4 through 6, he highlights something that I think gets lost a lot in kind of the modern church and the modern uh, evangelical understandings of what it is that God has done for us in Christ. Because I'm going to take a stab and say that if you consume a lot of TV preachers or radio preachers or um, you know, that kind of thing, you have heard a lot about how God is filled with wrath towards us. That God is angry with us. In fact, one of the seminal sermons in American history by Jonathan Edwards is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that's the image that so many of our brothers and sisters have. But I want to suggest to you, actually I don't want to suggest to you, I'm telling you that right here in this text, Paul says that that's not actually the case. God's motivation for redeeming us is not his anger, it is not his wrath, it is his love. Paul says in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Because of God's great love. Now, if you are someone who has been a part of the Covenant Church for a long time, you will recognize this theme because this is one of the foundational themes of covenant theology. And it's actually what got one of the founding fathers of the covenant kicked out of the state church of Sweden. That he would dare to suggest that God's motivation in redeeming us was not anger and wrath, but love. He says this, The scriptures teach that no change took place in God's disposition towards man in the consequence of his sin. That therefore it was not God who needed to be reconciled to man, but that it was man who needed to be reconciled to God. And that consequently, 
Reconciliation is a work which proceeds, proceeds from God and is directed towards man and aims not to appease God, but to cleanse man from sin and to, and to restore him to a right relation to God. In other words, God is motivated by love to redeem us, to make us whole, to cleanse us of sin. Not to appease himself, but to restore us. And you'll note that in these verses, when Paul is describing this, this redemption is not for either the in crowd or the out crowd, but for all of us. You see, I think one of the dangers we have in our individualistic society is that every time in the scriptures, we, when we read the word you, we think in the singular. It's just something ingrained in our Western understanding of the world. Perhaps it's something ingrained in the particular Western American understanding of the world. When we read you, we think of only ourselves oftentimes. But in almost every instance in the letters of Paul, I would hazard a guess that more often than not, the you is a plural you. He's speaking to the entire body. And so when we, rate, when we read these verses, we as individuals are included, of course. But what Paul has in mind, what Paul is driving at is the corporate. He's driving at the community, the body of Christ. So when it is by grace you have been saved, yes, it includes me, and it includes you, but Paul is talking about all of us. And that is an important thing to remember as we seek to be God's people. We are made alive in relation to others, right? We are made alive in relation to others. Which means that uh, we are called and we are redeemed to live in what I would call gracious community. You see, what Paul is doing in this argument as he's setting up this whole section of the book is he's reminding us that we are all in the same boat. We are all broken, we are all sinful, we are all messes. None of us comes with any sense of uh, that we have achieved some kind of righteousness in and of ourselves. And in fact, I would argue that the way Paul did this at the beginning of this letter, the way he started out by saying you, is a very intentional choice to point out to us that the most insufferable people we know are those who are sure that everybody else is wrong and they are right. Or everybody else is not quite inside, but they most certainly are. I think what one of the things that this drives home for us is this idea of our corporate need called forward God's amazing grace to redeem us together to live in gracious community. In other words, we should live together in the same way that God acts towards us in this passage. So that when that brother or sister annoys the ever-loving stuff out of you, 
guess what our response is to be? It is to be gracious community. Gracious love. So, Paul goes on to point out why it is that he has done this. Verse 6 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Brothers and sisters, we are the coming ages. Right? That's what Paul is talking about. As history rolls on, Paul is saying, that the community, this gracious community that God has redeemed, that his plan is to use that community to show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so that begs a question. How many of us, how many of you, when you think of the church, think of a community that is demonstrating the incomparable riches of his grace? We've got some work to do, friends. We can be better. We can do better. We can love more. We can demonstrate more grace. And I know that is a terrifying idea. You know why it's terrifying? Because it is chaotic and messy. And it doesn't look all neat and tidy and tied up in bows and in tight little theological boxes. It means that we have to do the work of community together to demonstrate that grace that we have all experienced. William Barclay, the great theologian, said this about this verse. He said that this was God's publicity program for the whole of history and beyond. He planned a continuing exhibition of his favor toward humanity to cover all the centuries between the ascension and the return of Christ, and after that through all eternity. Another way of saying that might be that, friends, we are supposed to be the advertisement for the kingdom of God. Now, the question is, what is that advertisement supposed to look like? Well, I think part of what it's supposed to look like is um, hinted at in this verse, in these verses. Paul goes on at the end of this verse. He says that all of this is expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What if, brothers and sisters, what if we took that seriously? The word for kindness here, the sense of it is not just being nice to one another, because I think sometimes we do that so well that we never get past the surface, right? It's easy to be kind to somebody if you don't really know the mess that's going on in their lives. Or you don't ever talk about the hard things. 
right? I mean, I grew up in the age when, and perhaps it still is the age, when people said, well, you don't talk about money, sex, or politics, right? Because it's impolite. And I would suggest that part of the reason that we can't talk about money, sex, or politics is because we never talk about money, sex, or politics. Part of the reason we're so divided in the church and as a nation is because we don't know how to talk to each other when we disagree. We just cancel them out and put a label on them and move on. The word kindness here, this kindness that God demonstrated to us in Christ is love in tender action. Love in tender action. Now that is challenging. What does that mean for us? I think it compels us to strive so that our church reflects God's love in tender action to each other in our brokenness and to those who do not yet know God. I think if we are redeemed by grace, that that is what we are redeemed to. And Paul goes on to talk about that. Paul goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, and this is, these are the most, the most known of the verses that we read this morning. For it is by grace you have been saved. Another way to say that would be to say, for it is by gift you have been saved. For it is by gift you have been saved. And then, like we could forget that it was a gift in the space of one sentence, Paul goes on to emphasize that, and this is not of yourself, right? We have an amazing capacity to forget things very quickly. For it is, you have, for it is by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourself. We receive the gift and automatically appropriate it like somehow we deserved it and earned it. Paul wants us to understand that that is not what's happening here. What's happening here is that God, through Christ, is redeeming us in spite of ourselves. And then he goes on to say that, that we're to do, that the outcome of that is to do good works which he has prepared for us in advance. We are saved by grace. We didn't do it. We can't earn it. There's nothing that uh, we could do to earn it. But the result of it, when that transformation actually takes root, then God works through us. Paul says in verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. The Greek word there for handiwork is poema, or the word we get poem from. Right? We're God's story. We're God's poem. We're God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Verse 10 suggests that since we have been made alive, that we allow that life to flow naturally. That it becomes so ingrained, we become so transformed by the gift of grace in Christ Jesus that we are filled with kindness and grace and we live a masterpiece of good works. 
Not to prove how saved we are, not to prove how holy we are, not to prove how righteous we are, and most certainly not to prove how right we are, but just to prove how redeemed we are. God has redeemed us in Christ so that we might walk about, as we talked about at the beginning of this, to walk about in good works. Because it's our nature, because of what Christ has done in our lives. We become communities of love in tender action. And so, friends, perhaps what redemption really is, is a lived work of art. A story told by God through us that changes the world, even if just a little bit.